Welcome to PSQH the podcast. I'm your host Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Joel Diamond about precision medicine and how it can help improve the quality of patient treatment. And now, on to the interview. Hello, this is Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joel Diamond, chief medical officer of To Be Precise, and we're going to talk about precision medicine. Um, welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you very much, Jay. It's good to be with you today. Thanks. And I guess let's start off by, um, I'll have you tell me about uh, To Be Precise and, uh, and what you do there. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, well, I'm the chief medical officer for To Be Precise. It's a company that uh, we founded a few years ago as we recognize that the advancements in genomics and precision medicine have been fairly profound in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, but getting that information and having an informatics platform that doctors could use at the point of care was a, a huge need. And that's what we do. We um, bring insights um, to the genomic information to uh, clinicians, and we allow that to be done within their workflow, depending on uh, independent of what EMR they're on. Great. And can you explain to me exactly what is precision medicine and, and how does it improve patient safety? Yeah, so I think at this stage, um, we recognize that precision medicine is really an emerging approach for disease management um, that we haven't had in the past. And I would also say in disease prevention. Um, and where it differs from uh, treatment in the past is that it takes into account the individual variability um, that exists, not just in genes, but environment, lifestyles, et cetera, for each um, person. So in contrast to the one size fits all model that we've had in medicine all along, or an approach over the last um, few years to look at big trials and, and sort of uh, make guidance to the middle, to the average, um, we recognize that there are huge individual differences in how people respond uh, to medication, why one person's uh, disease course is different than another, and there, uh, in many cases, has a genetic component to this. And how widespread is precision medicine right now? So I think it depends what area that you're looking at when you say um, widespread. So certainly for years now, um, people have been using genetics um, in the field of maternal fetal medicine or um, looking at um, rare diseases in pediatrics as an example. So in that sense, it's, it's well established as a standard of care, although the advances in um, those areas have um, markedly improved in the last couple of years. And then of course, we've seen the explosion of genetics in the uh, area of cancer treatment over the last few years, um, where it just went from being somewhat of an anomaly to realize that there were treatments for cancers that were based on molecular findings rather than the anatomical site of that cancer, to now an explosion where it's hard to believe that somebody would be diagnosed with cancer um, and not consider uh, sending that tumor sample for genetic uh, analysis uh, to determine whether or not the treatment course that's been the traditional approach is appropriate or not. Um, I think we're still a way off though in the day-to-day -day use of genomics um, in practice, both informing clinicians that a condition might have a genetic basis, i.e. 
a cardiologist seeing a patient with an arrhythmia or a doctor treating someone with a medication that might have a genetic uh, difference in the way it's um, metabolized, um, or uh, recognizing that a patient with high cholesterol might have a genetic basis of it and the treatment might be different. So I think on that end, we're, we're still, um, I would say, significantly far away from being the standard of care. Um, why do you think we haven't done more with this? Is it just sort of, it's still kind of a developing um, practice or, you know, or is it just that, you know, we've, you know, if there's, the profession is so set in its ways that it hasn't necessarily opened up to this yet? <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it's all of the above. I think um, certainly uh, for those of us who've been practicing medicine a long time, I've been a family doctor coming up on 30 years now. Um, and every major advance in medicine has taken frustratingly long in my eyes. I remember the early days of laparoscopic surgery to the time that it took to be the standard of care. The lag in between seemed ridiculous. Um, of why somebody would still be in the hospital a week later post-op when they could have gone home the same day or the, or the next day with less complications. Um, at the beginning of my career, I remember when MRI was first coming out as a new modality, and this is aging me quite a bit, mm -hmm. but it took a long time, um, again, for that to be mainstream because a lot of the change management, how do you change you know, the infrastructure of hospital to have you know, a, a shielded magnet area and, and things like that? I also think um, one of the other problems is, unlike those technologies, if you look at the cost of DNA sequencing, the cost has dropped in a manner of no other technology. It's outpaced Moore's law um, in this. And I think there continues to be a lagging um, perception that this is a very, very expensive um, technology. And the fact of the matter is when the human genome was uh, uh, discovered and unraveled, over 15 years ago, it cost $3 billion um, to do that sequencing. Um, and today people are talking about a sub $1,000 test or even you know, approaching a couple hundred dollars for a full genome um, test. So that cost perception is one that I think is a wrong one, but I, I, I think you know, when people see that staggering cost not that long ago, it's hard for people to believe that the cost has come um, down the other problems I think are sort of the basic informatics problems um, that we have. Most of the genetic results today are coming back um, as non-discrete data and paper, so as a document. Um, and we've worked so hard to get other information um, at the point of care where we can build algorithms and do clinical decision support with labs and other data. And yet here we are now um, coming back with non-discrete data on, on paper. Um, as an example. And I also think the science is moving so fast that we haven't developed the standardized nomenclature and language and vocabularies um, that we need to do some of these um, important things. And lastly, because of the very rapid um, piece of uh, how fast the science is, is moving, the real hard work of being able to link genomic findings with phenotypic findings and make those available to doctors in a practical way has yet to be um, fully determined. So, you know, this is our work at To Be Precise um, and a lot of other people's is building this informatics backbone that can allow this to happen. And I think that's that's one of the obstacles we've had to date. And you, you mentioned, you know, 
they're in the standard nomenclature. How far away are we from uh, from getting that? Well, we're close, but you know, uh, my my snarky answer to that, Jay, is um, we haven't done that for everything else in medicine. Mm -hmm. So you know, we we, we it, look how long it it took us to get from. ICD-9 to ICD-10, and we still have right. SNOMED as another epic. So I think we're going to continue to do that. And within the domains themselves, you know, we're still working on standard nomenclature around cancer treatment and, and, and cancer nomenclature, et cetera. So this will continue to be a, a challenge. And, you know, from my perspective in the way that we've looked at informatics over the years, we've got to keep moving forward. Um, I, I will say people who uh, I'll say bureaucrats, and but it's unflattering. But the people who are work on standards will continue to do that, and there will continue to be more and many standards, and we'll we'll try to unify them. But we can't let that slow us down in terms of making this data available at the point of care. Have there been obstacles in terms of you know I guess opposition to this uh, to this happening, or is it just sort of a, a slow process, like you said? No, I think there's some real obstacles. Um, some of them um, are uh, some of the obvious ones that people know about. I think we have a significant issue still with understanding um, the privacy issues around genomic information. Um, it doesn't apply across the board, for instance, uh, doing the portion of the genome that has to do with pharmacogenomics, drug safety, um, really informs nobody uh, of you know anybody's DNA footprint, so to speak, that's any different than any of your lab tests. But certainly, doing larger sections of one's DNA um, have huge implications for um, privacy and security. There are bigger issues that I think people are concerned about: what, whether or not your genetic predisposition um, has anything to do with things like insurability and job selection and lots of other things. And I think these um, ethical issues. Um, have to be contended with. I, I, I think sometimes we make a bigger deal out of them than, than um, we should on a practical level, but other times not. So we, we have to wrestle with those um, very, very practical pieces here. We have to um, figure out um, the cost piece of this because today you can order an individual gene test um, for several thousand dollars. You, I mentioned that you could have your whole genome done for, for less than that or an exome or uh, a panel of tests. And so that part still hasn't been worked out because we're still um, in the uh, infancy of this. And then I think the other hard part of this is you're seeing the explosion of consumer-based tests. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when a, a patient walks into their doctor and said, I just um, had a consumer test that told me about my pharmacogenomics, I don't wanna be on this drug. Um, the reaction of the physician is all sorts of things, but it's not like, well, thank you, that's informative. I'll put that in your chart um, right now. So I think that's that's the other piece that's working um, against us. And, and finally, one last piece I'll throw in is who owns this data? Um, so we've seen that over, um, recently where people have signed up for genetic tests and surprised that some of that information is being um, peddled in, in to, to, to other entities um, who are profiting off of that, and that needs to be more open before we can move forward and people have trust in the system. Are there issues with the accuracy of the consumer tests that you mentioned? Well, most of the consumer tests, as you know, um, are not CLIA certified tests. 
Um, so th that's one thing um, that I'm sure there will be um, ones, um, but there have been issues with accuracy. Some of these have been um, well publicized. Um, people have sent their DNA off to three different right. consumer tests and got three different um, results. Uh, there were some uh, lawsuits involving people who were told they had a predisposition for cancer and went ahead and had a procedure done as a result of that and found out that, oops, you, you don't have that. Um, and that's the, the, the problem of, I think, in general, of doing anything without having a clinician involved in either the selection of the test, the interpretation of the test, and, and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I, I think accuracy is, is one small part of the whole big problem of, you know, consumer grade tests versus clinical tests. But um, I'll, I'll make a controversial statement. That's our fault as clinicians. We've been too slow to jump on this bandwagon and patients really want this stuff and we haven't met their, their need on it. And so they're like in a lot of other things going elsewhere for this and there's a potential danger of it. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it, it does seem like, you know, uh, the healthcare profession is sort of behind uh, when it comes to the, the access to these tests. And clearly, you know, you can get these consumer tests pretty much anywhere. So what, you know, how do you kind of uh, counteract that? Well, I think, you know, this is my passion right now and, and what we're working um, for and many other people are um, with this. Um, but, you know, let's be honest, you can order a test looking at your genealogy um, today, have those results very, very quickly and, and cheaply um, for the most part, um, have a nice website to access that information and do cool stuff with it as a consumer. Um, good luck doing that um, with anything on a, on a clinical um, basis. Um, and by the way, um, if you just ask your physician, I'm interested in having a pharmacogenomic test to help manage my multiple medicines that I'm on or the problems I've had with multiple medicines in the past, or I'm on my third antidepressant and why is it not working? Um, today, a lot of people would say, I'm not familiar with pharmacogenomics, or I think pharmacogenomics isn't the right answer now, or I think that test will be wicked expensive. And so I recommend you don't have it. And yet you can go now to the web and the FDA has approved um, some of these consumer um, grade tests, even for pharmacogenomic um, testing um, today. So that discrepancy, we have to really, really narrow that gap very, very quickly, or this is going to get away from us as, as a, a medical community. And what role does education play uh, in terms of, you know, healthcare practitioners uh, is sort of improving this, uh, you know, situation with genetic testing? Well, it's the big, it's, it's the hard one um, with this. So on one level, uh, for most of us, I gave away my age earlier um, in this interview, but you know, my level of genetics understanding um, is from a very small portion of the curriculum I had in medical school, and then whatever continuing medica medical education I've I've kept up um, with uh, with this. But you know, again, most of the advancements in genomics have occurred within the the, the big advancements in the last um, decade or so. Um, I will say that my son, who's uh, just finished his second year of medical school. Um, is a little bit better, um, but he was kind of shocked that his pharmacology curriculum um, was separated from 
uh, the genetics um, curriculum, um, as was, you know, pathology and, and a lot of other um, uh, courses he, he's taken. So uh, that's one gap um, on, a, on a big level of education. But I mean, there's another level. One of them is we need to tell people this isn't hard. This isn't go back and learning about, you know, alleles and locations on a chromosome and, and things like that. A lot of this is simple stuff. And I, I remind my colleagues that we do much harder things all the time. So if I can show a physician um, medications on a simple grid that's red, yellow, and green, where red means they have a problem with that drug metabolism, I think they get it. If I tell them, remember in medical school and pharmacology, you learned that cytochrome P450 had something to do with how drugs are metabolized. Well, there's genes that are responsible for that. And you can now look at medications as, as being um, ones that are metabolized too much or metabolized too slowly based on genetics. And that plays a role in how people um, respond to medicines or have um, side effects as an example. Um, <clears throat> I would also say on the simple side, uh, that, you know, we know things already um, about genetics um, and we could just um, have a few tools to make that easier for us. So we know that the BRCA gene is responsible uh, for breast and ovarian um, cancer syndromes in family. There's a few other cancer syndromes um, that people need to be educated about. Um, things like Lynch syndrome for, for colon cancer or multiple endocrine neoplasma, which we know exists, but there's a genetic um, test for that or knowing that certain arrhythmias that patients have um, cardiovascular diseases like cardiomyopathy or aneurysms have a genetic basis. And there's a simple test to order from that that could help guide people and, and affect their family. So I think that level of education needs to be imparted without saying you have to go back and learn all the science of, of genetics, which I think is frightening to people. Um, yeah, I would imagine. Um, it what can healthcare learn from the consumer side of things? I mean, obviously, you know, they've already tapped into the public's, you know, desire for this information. What can, what can healthcare kind of take from that and, and put towards their side of things? Well, one is, I think that the um, patient demand for, for is voracious for this information. And there's a reason for that. And I think, um, that to me is the most important one. I think as a primary care doctor, I share the consumer's frustration and that is why have over the years in large scale clinical trials, a drug comes out and then we use it um, in regular practice only to find out that it caused heart attacks or caused some other adverse um, effects. Um, so that's one thing that, that we've learned, I think from the consumer is that Consumers know already that, that people respond differently to different things, sometimes life-threatening. And they, um, although uh, their trust may be too big in um, what genetics is capable of and not, um, they really want this kind of information to guide um, their clinicians. So um, on one end, I think these consumer-grade um, tests that, um, can tell people, you know, what kind of exercise to do or what kind of food to eat um, or what kind of wine you might like, um, maybe a little bit amusing. On the other hand, um, by that same token, uh, if I had a test um, and I was an athlete, um, that informed me that I was more likely to be prone to certain type of knee or Achilles injury. 
um, it might be inf inform me on how I train or what sport I might um, uh, participate in, et cetera. So I think we can start with some of those basic um, areas, um, not be too amused by what people are looking for, and then expand that into our regular practice. I mean, is it almost like a, a marketing campaign as well to sort of, <laughs> you know, say, hey, don't get your genetic information from, you know, these you know, on websites, get it from your doctor? Well, I think for, for sure that's the, the case. I, I struggle a little bit on why somebody would want to have a, gen, uh, a pharmacogenomic test done, a non-CLIA certified um, test done, for instance, that now does nothing. It doesn't exist in my medical record and doesn't do anything to be able to tell my doctor. So if I have a, a test that says that I have a CYP2D6 um, anomaly, um, when I go into the emergency room and somebody's going to prescribe me a drug, am I going to say to the emergency room doctor, hey, by the way, before you give me that, um, is it metabolized by CYP2D6? And they're going to have no idea. So I think on the other hand, for an institution to say, by the way, we employ pharmacogenomics at our institution to improve um, on drug safety um, is a game changer and, a, and I think potential marketing um, benefit. Um, the same is true for if a women's health center or a breast cancer center is saying, in addition to standard um, mammography that we're doing, we can um, use a questionnaire to identify um, patients that are from familial risk for um, breast and ovarian cancer and offer people a genetic test or genomic uh, for genetic counseling. Um, you know, this is where I think we take the, what, what people are going to the consumer test for and saying, let's use this to, to, to market ourselves to offer a better product. Have, have any institutions started to do this? Yeah, so we've had a huge um, uptake ourselves and to be precise around the area of um, pharmacogenetics and particularly, I think, um, you know, in the primary care uh, field. And some of those practices have really made this a differentiator uh, for them um, right now. Um, and I think their patients um, have been very, very happy with it. And I think um, the doctors have, I mentioned earlier, the area of behavior health, um, which is very, very frustrating as a primary care doctor because the burden of treating anxiety and depression mostly falls on um, us. And uh, to do this sort of pick out of a hat approach to an antidepressant drug and wait eight weeks and increase the dose and wait another four to six weeks and uh, change it again and again and again and wondering why we're not getting results or, or that there's, there's side effects of the medicine. We would love to shorten that course of the time of diagnosis to the time of resolution of, of this horrible illness and get people productive uh, again. Um, if we could shorten it even by a little, we'd be ecstatic. If we can make dramatic improvements in, in that time frame, um, it's it's truly a game changer, and at least in the primary care field. And I think we can you know talk about that across the board. Um, so I guess looking toward to the future of precision medicine, you know. Obviously, there's a, a lot needs to happen for this to really kind of, you know, kind of get to where you want it to be. But, where, you know, sort of, do you have any kind of timeline in mind, I guess, you know, hopefully that, 
you can see, you know, some of these changes happen? Yeah, I think we're going to see some some large changes uh, here. I think uh, moving this genetic testing um, as it continues to drop in price um, is going to be a, a big factor here. So I think moving away from sort of this, um, which is now somewhat old fashioned um, approach to doing individual tests when we need to, um, when we're looking for something, as opposed to if it's inexpensive enough to do a full genome, um, theoretically at birth, you know, the reality is that that's a test that you have done once in your life. So test once, query often, um, I think is the, the mantra there. And, you know, even at the current cost of that test, to extrapolate, extrapolate that cost over your lifetime of a test you only have done once, you know, literally makes it pennies for the um, cost of, of that test. So I think that's an area that um, we're going to see. Um, I do think, as I said, my own passion for informatics and bringing um, clinical decision support at the point of care um, for clinicians. Um, so if there are genetic results, they can inform them. I'm seeing a patient now with a weird constellation of symptoms. Is there a genetic test that they've already had um, that might say, hey, maybe you should consider this diagnosis um, at this point? Um, that needs to ha happen sooner, and I believe um, it, it will. Um, I'll pause for a second, look at an example. You know, if a patient comes in having a syncopal event, um, sometimes we sort of rubber stamp um, the diagnostic approach to this. So the patient will get some imaging of their head, they'll get an echocardiogram, they'll um, get some carotid Doppler studies, they might get an EEG, they might get a tilt table test, you know, all the, all the thing to figure out why they passed out. Um, if there was a genetic test uh, already there that suggested that they were prone to an arrhythmia, um, they had long QT syndrome or, or something like that, again, that would streamline um, that diagnostic workup in a big way. And I think that's an example of where I think we're moving towards in the future um, and probably in the, the near future um, of this. Excellent. Well, um, thank you, Dr. Diamond, for uh, talking to me today. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's a subject I love talking about. So thank you for having me. All right. Thanks. And that wraps up episode 15 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope to join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.